Psalm chapter 19, tonight, I was thinking as Mandy was singing, when Mandy find out, finds out what she's having, I, I would assume it's a girl just because I think it is, but we're going to have uh, one good little, what, what will we have there? We'll have a little trio of girls, and Ben can handle the money on the traveling bus. Because we don't need Ben on stage, you know. <laughs> just cause problems for everybody, but... Anyway, that's this going to be a good time. Psalm chapter 19 tonight, verse 7. I believe I owe you some time from last week. And so uh, we'll get out maybe a little bit early. I say that a bunch, and I realize I'm kind of like my dad in the fact that I lie a lot. But I'll try my best to be expedient. Psalm chapter 19, verse number 7 is where we will begin. And I want to talk to you about probably one of the most important things in the Christian life, and I don't use that term lightly. I don't use it to just draw your attention to what I'm talking about. I truly believe this could change your life as a Christian if you'd apply the message tonight. Psalm chapter 19, verse number 7. The Bible says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. Statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. I want to draw your attention to the next phrase, and I have to be quite honest with you. I would not have ever studied this passage out if it was not for the next phrase found in verse 13. Now, we're pretty familiar with verses 7 through about uh, 10, I would say. But verse 13 caught my attention. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright. And I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you today for your word. I thank you for speaking to me through your word, and I pray that you would speak through me and use your word tonight. Lord, there's so much power in the word of God, and there's so much power in this specific passage that I've chosen to preach from tonight. But Lord, I would hate to be the reason that that power was limited. So Father, do whatever you must to me so that you would silence me, my viewpoints, my opinions, my, my uh, alter uh, mo motives. Lord, I pray that everything would be done in clear direction from your Holy Spirit. And I pray that people in this room would put aside distractions so that they may be able to focus in on what your word has for them and what the Spirit of God is saying to them. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 
Now, every day, there is something that most of us value. I would even say that most of us spend quite a lot of time with the thing that I'm talking about. We spend a lot of time looking at it. We spend a lot of time reading it. We spend a lot of time thinking about what we've just seen in it. A recent study was done by Bloomberg Business, and it details in that study that the average person spends three hours and 45 minutes per day on their cell phone. And I would just venture to guess that we would probably, if someone were to watch our life each and every day, and they were to see what we looked at the most, and we were to see what impacted our attitude the most, and impacted the direction that we head the most, I would say that more people would come up with the answer of our cell phone than they would the Word of God. But it's pretty amazing what our phones can do now, isn't it? I remember when our phones were limited to the wall. You say, man, you, you, you remember that? Yes, yes, I do. I remember when cell phones came out. They looked very similar to phone books. They were so large, my mom had to carry like a military knapsack to carry her cell phone in. And uh, I remember you'd hold that thing up to your phone and you were cool if you had a cell phone. But really, it wasn't very mobile at all because the antenna on it was about six inches long. And it did not collapse ever. It was a solid antenna. And that phone looked like a brick. And uh, I remember those. And mom and dad got those. And I wow, what an invention. How awesome is that? I remember when dad got his first truck phone. That phone stayed right there in the truck. And he would bring his little Nokia. You all remember the Nokia phones that were so popular? The best thing about that phone was that, that it had snake as a game on there. If any of you remember that, I played that game quite regular. I uh, was not very good at it, but I enjoyed that game. And, and Dad would plug that cell phone into his little cradle there, and then the, the speakers would then come over, and you could speak to someone on speakerphone. It was just awesome. It even had like a little small phone if there was a lot of uh, uh, noise around you. In fact, Dad still has that phone and still has that cradle in his truck for some reason. I don't know why, but uh, I, I guess it reminds him of better days. I'm not sure. Uh, phones that he actually remember how to work. But uh, uh, now we have what is, at first, I thought was the dumbest invention of all time. And it shows you how smart and visionary I am. We have iPhones. And I, I literally told my brother, and I hate to admit that my brother was right. I don't mind admitting Dave's right. He's right all the time. But when Gene Jr.'s right, I really hate admitting it. Gene Jr. came down bragging on his brand new iPhone. Daddy, that's the greatest phone in the world. And that's exactly how Gene Jr. talks, if you ever met him. Daddy, Daddy, this is great. I love this phone. And I looked at him. Yeah, no, it's not. But anyway, um, uh, I looked right at Gene, and uh, my dad had just gotten a new Samsung Encore. That's what it was called. I said, Gene, I read the reviews on this phone, and they say it's twice as good as the iPhone. Needless to say, there was no Encore of the Samsung Encore. They only made one of them, and they stopped making them after that. iPhones had probably, I don't know, what are we on, the iPhone uh, 6 uh, Plus now? So, I mean, the iPhone's kind of an amazing invention. Not so much the droids, but that's for uh, another Bible study for us to have. But uh, uh, our iPhones are amazing things. I mean, just the fact that I was talking to somebody, uh, I guess it was yesterday, my daughter was looking at the iPhone, learning on it, and it's 
telling her what sound the horse makes and what sound the monkey makes, and she's learning on it. And, and Dad just made the statement how she's on it all the time. And I said, yeah, but at this point in her life, it's actually educating her. You know, it's, it's helping her when she plays those games. It's helping her associate colors with animals and sounds with animals. It's teaching her math problems, albeit the songs on there are quite annoying. And she asks for Doc all the time, and that's Doc McStuffins for those of you that don't know. And she loves that show, and we show her Doc on there, and it teaches good principles like how teddy bears come down with stuffed mycelosis, you know, just really good di- diagnoses like that. And, uh, and, uh, and I, I like that. And I was telling my dad, at this point in Caitlin's life, the phone is very developmental. But I said, it's not going to be too long where it actually limits her development. And she'll spend hours and hours on that phone, not if I can help it. But at the rate teenagers are going, they spend hours and hours on their phones. And they, I know they're at supper with their family, and they can't even converse with them because they're too busy Twittering and Facebook booking and whatever the new ones are called I'm not sure but but and, and I wonder where they learn that from but it's not their friends they learn it from it's their parents are doing it their parents are pinteresting and they're they're well my dad doesn't do anything on his phone he doesn't know where his phone is half the time but I do believe that at this point and I don't want to step on anybody's toes here I believe we are erring as Christians to making media such an important part of our life and really shrinking the importance of God's Word in our life. I'm going to ask you a question. It's not meant to hurt your feelings or not meant to offend you. But when's the last time you studied your Bible? Now, studying your Bible and reading your Bible are completely different things. See, I can read a science book, but studying that science book is completely different. When you read the Bible, the Lord can speak to you, and I believe the Lord will give you nuggets. But if you want to go digging for gold, get into some study. I want to talk to you tonight about the role of God's Word in your life. It's going to be a very simple sermon. In fact, I probably would say I won't venture far out of, from behind this pulpit. I believe there are several styles of preaching. I believe sometimes a preacher needs to get in your face. I believe that sometimes a preacher needs to get right in your face and just tell you how wrong you are and how much of a sinner you are. And, and I believe that's a very important part of preaching. I also believe there's times when a preacher ought to instruct in righteousness. I believe this is one of those times tonight. So I just want to give you a few things. First of all, what does the Word of God do for you and how does it serve a role in your life? Well, first of all, it keeps you right. It keeps you right. I want you to notice in verse 7, the Bible here starts out with a very powerful phrase, the law of the Lord is perfect. And that's a true statement. You see, I believe there's nothing in this book that's error. I believe God so profoundly used holy men of God, the the book of Peter says, uh, God so profoundly used men and spoke through men and the Holy Ghost moved them and they wrote as they were moved. And, and David even says that when he wrote the scriptures, it was like the Holy Spirit was in his tongue. 
And I believe that God did an amazing thing when he recorded his word. I don't believe there's any error in God's word. I believe it's perfect. I believe it's whole. I believe it's complete. It's exactly what God wanted us to have. I don't believe there's some partial remnants of God's word hidden in a cave that we don't have access to. I believe the Bible is perfectly preserved and inspired and inerrant and infallible for me to read in the King James Version of the Bible. It's perfect. But I want you to notice what this verse says. It does not stop by saying the law of the Lord is perfect. It continues. And it says, converting the soul. You see, it would not matter if this book was perfect if it did nothing to help us get perfect. Jesus left this earth and he looked at his disciples and says, Be ye perfect, even as the Father in heaven is perfect. Now, we've been taught for a long time that perfection is unattainable, have we not? And It's almost like we don't even try to reach for it because it's so far out. But God says, be ye holy, for I am holy. In fact, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, which is probably the best verse to defend the inerrancy of Scripture, the Bible says... All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But the the verse doesn't stop there. The verse goes on to say in verse 17 that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You see, it would not matter if God's Word were perfect if it did not help you and I become more perfect. And if you want somehow for God's Word to affect you, it would do you very good to get in God's Word, and it will help perfect you. The entire reason for God's Word being perfect is so that it can help us become perfect. And I'm not trying to teach a false doctrine of uh, uh, perfection or or sinlessness. No, I, I don't believe that's attainable. But I do believe God's Word is the only method for which a Christian can become better and more holy. A Christian cannot hope to be more holy. They cannot will to be more holy because even Jesus said, "The the Spirit indeed is willing." And maybe in your heart you want to be good for God and you want to do good for God. The spirit in you is willing, but the flesh is weak. So how do we become more perfect? We rely on God's word. We look into God's word and we let it as a mirror. James chapter 2 says, look into the perfect law of liberty and it will reveal our flaws and it will tell us when we have ugly habits and will tell us when we are not right with God and it will reveal to us. But here's the problem. Sometimes we don't like being told we're ugly. You ever wake up in the morning and go to your bathroom and you look in that mirror and you say, oh, that was a rough night. (laughs) Not because you were partying, of course. Because you just slept. I have a picture on my cell phone of Caitlin having woke up, and I thought it was so cute because she had a red patch here and a red patch on her nose and indentions from whatever she was sleeping on, and she was like half drunk smiling, and I just took a picture of it because I'm going to embarrass her at her graduation. (laughs) But you ever done that, looked into the mirror, and you say, Woo, I was not expecting my hair to do that when I woke up. Ooh, my breath. Woo, that's, that's pretty rough. That's even bad on me. You ever done that? That's what the Bible says it is. 
It's the perfect law of liberty, and as a mirror reveals the flaws of the person who looks into it, the Word of God reveals when we're not right with God. But if we are to see those things, we must look inside of it. It keeps us right by being perfect. It keeps us right by being pure. Now look in verse number 8. The Bible says, The statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart, and the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Well, I tell you what, if I had one desire in my life, it would be to live a pure life before God. Untainted, undefiled by sin, a pure life, pure so that I could come to Him in prayer anytime I want. Pure so that anytime I did go to Him in prayer, I would not beg for His ear because I would already know it would be there for me. A pure life. John chapter 15, Jesus said, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. The word has a cleansing effect to it. As we look into this Bible, it purifies us and cleanses us. Just like you take, uh, get in the shower in the morning and you take your shampoo and clean your hair and you take your soap and you clean your body and you get out of there and you throw on deodorant, the junior hire is not so much, but I'm sure you as an adult have uh, achieved that, and you do those things, what are you doing those for? So that you can be clean. So that when you get in an elevator with somebody, people don't look at you like, what kind of vulture just died on you? They don't look at you like that because you're clean. That's what the Bible does. It cleanses us. Ephesians chapter uh, 5, verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word. The Word of God cleanses us. And as we look into this mirror, the only way to see our flaws is to read it and see them in the book, but then to apply the book to our life, which will there in turn cleanse our life before God. It is perfect, it is pure, but I want you to notice finally, it is permanent. It's permanent. How many of you remember... uh, uh, what are they called? Bell-bottom jeans. <laughs> I believe that. Y'all remember that? How many of you remember Farrah Fawcett hairdos? <laughs> I think somebody said some of us still have that. I have a pretty good ear in Miss Davenport. You can't just whisper stuff to Brother Billy. <laughs> you got used to Dad being up here all those years. Next time, just don't talk about me, and we'll be okay. But he doesn't even know what he's talking about. I heard that! How many of you remember Chia Pets? Ch-ch-ch-chia, right? Y'all remember that? I looked at that, and I said, what a stupid idea. As if I wanted more grass to grow in a vase, shaped like an animal. And then they look like there's something that you go kick your feet on to to clean it, and you realize you're you're actually kicking your feet on someone's perfect plant, and it turns out that that was a plant that symbolized the love and the relationship, and you're kicking it. You know, that's not good. Cha-cha-cha-chia. Y'all remember those? How many of you remember Furbies? Those creepy devil dolls. It was this alien-looking bird doll, and it would blink and stuff and talk and... And a few years ago, they were... You remember Tickle Me Elmo's? You remember people were dying, going into Target, trampling people for a Tickle Me Elmo so they could talk in a creepy voice to our children? Hello! You know? <laughs> That's no good. You see, all these that I mentioned, they're fads. 
I would believe that it would be difficult to find maybe some Farrah Fawcett hairdos in here. I believe it might be difficult to find some bell-bottom jeans on somebody unless you go down to Walmart at midnight. I'm sure there's some then. All these are fads. They come in and they, they, they have this trend and spike effect to them. And they're very popular for a moment, but they eventually die down. Did you know the Word of God is not like that? The Word of God is not a trend. It is not a fad. In fact, most of the time it's not even popular. But the Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 89... Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It's never going to change. So if you apply your life to this book and you apply this book to your life and you make changes that this book says are good to make and you do things that are uh, 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 and you're not doing things that this book says are not good to do, if you apply yourself to this book, when you look back 10 years from now, you're not going to say, what was I thinking? You ever look back in your high school album? Uh, your little uh, annual there they gave out, and you say, man, did I look like a goober. I'm very young, and I look back and I say, man, I look like a goober when I look back. My wife was the only good portrait picture I've ever seen, so that was for you, honey. I just had to, I pick on you a lot, so I just wanted to help you out there, but if you apply this book to your life, you're not going to look back 10 years from now and say, what was I doing? I can't believe that I took alcohol out of my life. What a stupid, unpopular decision. No, you're going to look back and you're going to say, I did that because God wanted me to remove that from my life. And I, you'll look back and say, I changed that for God and it's going to be popular in 10 years in God's eyes if this book says it. It's permanent. The Bible says, Matthew chapter 24, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not fall. There's nothing in God's Word that's going to change. And that's why I believe we have the book. We don't need to change our book, improve our book, uh, uh, somehow alter our book. If our book was perfect a hundred years ago, it's still perfect now. Perfection needs no improvement, you understand. Oh, it's perfect and it's pure and it's permanent. If you'll apply your life to this book, it'll change you. And you'll never regret the changes that occur. It keeps us right. I want you to notice, secondly, it keeps us ready. Verses 10 and 11, I want you to notice just a couple things. Verse 10, it helps our appetite stay ready. Look in verse 10, the Bible says, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Today my family had lunch. And we usually have lunch on Sunday afternoons, and we make all types of platters and, 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 and types of things that we eat. And a couple days ago, my mom informed me we were having hamburgers. And you may think, well, what do you, that's kind of a weird thing to eat. But you don't understand how good my mom's hamburgers are. My mama makes the best hamburgers in town. And this is no insult to my wife. She makes the best baked spaghetti in town. She makes the best fried chicken in town. She makes amazing things, but my mama's burgers are amazing. Somebody asked me the other day, what's the best burger in town? Without hesitation, I said, my mama's. They said, what's the second? I said, well, you have Grumps. You could go to Grumps, but my mama's is the best. I love my mom's hamburgers, and so ever since I found out we were having them, you know what I've done? 
been looking forward to those hamburgers. Today, my wife looked over at me and says, you want tomatoes? And I go, I don't know. I just got to ask mom how she always makes them because they're awesome whenever she makes them. So mom, do I get tomatoes? Yes, you do, son. Okay, then I have tomatoes. I was so anxious to eat those hamburgers. The last time we had hamburgers, I think I ate three. And, and for those of you that know me and have ever ate supper with me, I don't eat very much at all. And I ate three of those things, and I had to unbutton my pants right there in front of my family. I, I was in so much pain. I'm like, I think, Mom, you've caused me to sin, a great sin of gluttony. Mom, this is such a bad thing. But I love those burgers. They just taste so good. And, and we talked about other burgers here in town, and none of them even come close. Did you know that Job says that's how he felt about the Word of God? Job says, and this is directly after his trial, and you want to know when, you're, when the Word of God becomes extremely sweet? When it's the only thing that helps. When it's the only thing that comforts. When reading a psalm is the only thing that will console your grieving. The Bible says, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job loved God's word, and it was his appetite and desire. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. What was amazing today after my mom brought those burgers out, ate two of those hamburgers, they were delicious. Mandy went over to her house and cooked bacon, so we had bacon cheeseburgers. It was just amazing. I'm talking, whew, is good. And then after all that was done, my mom said, uh, Who's ready for some chocolate cake? Or chocolate pie? Wasn't that pie? I, I don't know the difference. She said, who's ready for some chocolate pie? I said, ooh, I like chocolate pie. Chocolate pie's good. And she said, what about some calf slobber? I said, ooh, calf slobber. Some of you may, may be too Yankee to know what calf slobber is. That's Cool Whip. But it's better than Cool Whip. It's calf slobber. And I'm talking, I got that chocolate pie there and I had that calf slobber and I was eating it and it just tasted so good, sweet it was dessert, it was like it topped it all off did you know that I believe that you can digest the Bible in several different ways the Bible says that you can desire the sincere milk of the word I believe that is a very entry level type Christianity and Bible study it's the person reading a proverb a day, that's the milk of the word Oh, there's nothing wrong with milk. In fact, milk helps build strong bones. It has calcium, and it tastes really good in Captain Crunch. Milk's good. But did you know that there is a meat to the word? But meat is not found in a proverb a day. Meat is found in finding out what you believe. It's finding out what God says about his word, about a relationship with him, and how, how uh, Jesus Christ tore the temple veil. It's, it's about finding out how Jesus ushered out the old covenant and brought in the new covenant and redemption through his blood and how sins are no more passed from year to year by the blood of bulls and goats. But Jesus Christ died once 
and, and for all, for the sins of the world. You see, that's not what you get when you read your proverb a day. The meat of the word is some of the deepest theology you'll ever see. People open chemistry books and try to impress me. They try to tell me of all the amazing things in science, and, and I'm happy for them that they love that. But there is nothing more profound, nothing more prophetic, nothing more powerful than the Word of God speaking God theology. I'm talking about theology that says Christ Jesus did not just die on Calvary, but that Jesus Christ was chosen to be slain before the foundation of the world. In Colossians chapter 1, when Jesus Christ stepped out to create the world, He knew at that moment, when he spoke it into existence that he would then eventually have to die for the world. That's the meat of the word. But you don't find the meat of the word in our daily bread. Because that's our daily bread. The meat of the word is when you decide to sit on your coffee table and dig deep into this book and find commentaries, find uh, study helps, but some of us have never taken the step from milk to meat. And I think it's about time we do that. I read recently of a preacher who was too old to enter a pulpit anymore. His health did not allow him to. And yet every day he got up to study for a sermon like he was preaching on Sunday morning. And he never had an intention of preaching. What he found out was studying the Word of God helped him. I asked Josh Burge to preach to the youth department this week, and I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this with you, but he looked at me and said, Brother Andrew, I thank you for, for allowing me to do this because it allowed me to get in study and see things I had never seen before and have God speak to me like I had never had him speak to me before. I just want to lay a challenge at your feet, and I'll do this with a teenager sometimes. Here's a challenge. How about this week you study like you're teaching next Sunday? Find a topic. I don't care what it is. Find a, a topic on baptism. We are buried with Him in death. We are raised with Him in resurrection. You, you, you find those things and, and, and pick a topic and study it and see if it doesn't change you this week. It changes our appetite. Secondly, it changes our awareness. Verse 11, the Bible says, as he desired the word of God and studied the word of God, verse 11 says, Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. And in keeping of them, there is great reward. I like this because it's almost like he flips gears here and he's talking, uh, he's saying that it's a good thing to study the word of God because it's sweet and it helps him and it encourages him and builds him up. But it also gives him peripheral vision to see traps that are set around him. I used to play football for JCA, and we were never very good. Uh, a lot of that had to do with me um, playing on the team. But I did play. Uh, we played six-man football, so we did not play 11-man, which is probably a much more physical game, I would say. But we enjoyed it nonetheless. We had a good time playing. Uh, when I was a freshman, I was so deathly afraid of getting hit hard because I was much smaller than everybody. When I was a freshman, I was probably 125, 130 pounds, six foot one. <laughs> I've always been six foot one. I don't know why, but my feet were size 13. And when I was that age, at that weight, I looked very similar to a clown in a, in a skin-tight outfit. I had these huge feet. I was not very coordinated. My body was still kind of growing and learning itself. And so I was just goofy as all get out. 
Uh, in fact, my freshman year, I would say, was the very best football team I played on. There were some, actually, some guys who were really good athletes on that team. And uh, I remember going to practice, and I was scared to hit these guys. Some of, them were, some of them were big. In fact, one of my best friends, he was a freshman with me, and he was linebacker. We were running a scout team defense. And that means that you have your starters on one side, and you're the other side just practicing against them to make them better. In other words, you're a practice dummy. And we were running scout team defense, and the starting team was over there, and they were playing. And we had an all-state running back. Man, I'm talking about he could break runs for miles. He was so fast. He was so strong. Just plow guys over. It was awesome to watch him run the ball. And uh, we were running. uh, uh, Actually, they were running scout team defense, and we were on offense. And Eric, my friend, was running running back. And he did not generally do that, but it was just to help the, the defense practice. And he got the ball through what we called the two-hole, and he ran it right up the middle. And he saw Chris right across from him, which is our big linebacker. Chris, guy works out and steroids and stuff like that, but uh, he didn't really. But he was a big guy, strong guy. And he come through that line, and Chris and Eric met up. And Eric goes, Chris! <laughs> and tucked that ball and essentially laid down because he didn't want to get hit by Chris. And uh, I was very scared of getting hurt, uh, getting hit hard. But as I grew, I realized that when you make contact with somebody, it's going to hurt you. And it doesn't really matter whether you're on offense or whether you're on defense. It hurts to hit another man at full speed. And the pads really don't do that much other than to insulate the blow, but you still feel a lot of the blow. But there was one specific type of hit that I feared the most, and it was called an ear hole hit. You may not fully understand that terminology, but the way a football helmet is constructed, it wraps right here in front of your ears, and you have your face mask on, and so while you can see pretty well out in front of you, your peripheral vision is kind of uh, obstructed. And you can't see out, but you have these little things so that you can hear, and they're called ear holes, and they're right there by your ear. And an ear hole hit is when you're involved in a play, whether offense or defense, and somebody comes and hits you right on that ear hole so that you never saw them coming. And sometimes you can be running into them, and they hit you, and they just take you out. I remember as a senior, I got to ear hole a guy, and uh, I, I... I hope that I was never braggadocious on the playing field because uh, I think that's a terrible attribute to have. But I remember hitting this kid, and I looked down on him, and I said, <laughs> There were just some people sleeping, and I needed to help them out there. And that kid started crying. <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But I remember how good it felt to earhole him. But I tell you what, it never felt good to get earholed. Let's get blindsided. Did you know the Bible here is speaking, and, and the psalmist says, it makes me aware of my surroundings. Read it again. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. Did you know a fish will never bite a hook that it knows is there? Let me say that again. A fish will never bite a hook that, it's, that it knows is there. You know what we do? We hide the hooks. We try disguising them to look like a tail. We try putting a worm on them so that the worm hides the hook and all the fish sees is the juicy bait 
but under there is the hook. And a lot of times what Satan does is he lays out these traps in our path and disguises them so well as innocent things. You know, going to a a, a birthday party. I remember when I was uh, uh, playing football just in, what what do we call that, the the little peewee. Yeah, that's fine, good, I like that. It was the peewee. And I remember we went over and we are just having a celebratory party. Uh, And we were just having a good old time until the adults busted out the beer. And Satan throws out these very innocent things, but what they are is traps. And the Bible says that if we will study the Word of God and apply the Word of God, it will make us aware of these. The psalmist says in chapter 119, But my eyes are unto thee, O God the Lord, in thee is my trust. Leave not my soul destitute. Keep me from snares which they have laid for me. Snares that have been laid, keep me from them. And that's only going to be accomplished if we stay in the Word of God and it will reveal to us areas that we ought not go. And it will reveal things that are not innocent and will reveal things that are not right for a Christian to partake in. It keeps us ready with our appetite and our awareness. I want you to notice finally, and we're actually quite close to being done, it keeps us, first of all, right. It keeps us, secondly, ready. Notice, thirdly, it keeps us relying. Now, here's the truth about the Word of God, is it reveals our inability. While we get so puffed up with pride all the time, that is such a carnal thought that we have accomplished something as men. That there's good in us. That, that we can somehow muster up good. The Bible teaches a completely contrary story. It teaches, for there is none that do good. They are all together become unprofitable. They, there is none that seeketh after God. And so if you study the Bible, it teaches over and over again that you in your own flesh, that you in your own power will fail every time. But one thing that happens is when we don't study the Bible and we don't stay in the Bible, we become prideful. And that's what the Bible does is it keeps us from becoming prideful. Look in verse 13. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Now I had to look up what the word term the, the word presumptuous means. I, I like learning new vocabulary words. I like applying new vocabulary words per adventure sometimes it helps me sound smart. Per adventure means perhaps in King James English in case you did not know. And uh, I, I like doing those things so I had to look up what presumptuous means. Presumptuous means failing to observe the limits of what is permitted or appropriate. Now that's an English, uh, modern English uh, uh, definition. But biblically, presumptuous means arrogance, pride, and insolence. It's arrogance. Keep me from prideful or presumptuous sins. Keep me from sins that I thought I could escape from, but in my own power I never had a chance. Keep me from sins that I have reigned over me for a long time. Keep me from those things. Keep me from pride rising up and grabbing me. Most of Peter's faults had to do with his pride. Most of his falls had to do with his pride. Peter was a prideful man, and I would say sometimes we look a lot more like Peter than we do Jesus Christ. It keeps us from pride. I want you to notice, secondly, it keeps us from prison. 
It keeps us from prison. Look in verse 13. The Bible says, Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. I want to be very careful here, but I want to be very stern here. People look at the Bible like it's bondage. They look at if they were going to apply God's Word and apply all the rules and the standards and principles of God's Word, like that would be such a a life of bondage and slavery to God. But I actually would argue quite the contrary. For I want you to travel with me tonight to the back alley to the person who has a heroin addiction. I want you to go with me to the person who cannot find a job because every time they get one, they lose it because there's a God that calls out to them and it's a drug. And they say, well, I wouldn't want part of that Bible. It tells me to stay away from things like alcohol and and from things that please me. Those things that please you oftentimes lord over you. And you're placed in prison and you're placed in bondage and you're no more free than a slave. And it reigns over you. It tells you the life you're to live. It tells you where to go, when to go, who to meet, who to be with. It tells you how to live your life. And you're in prison. Jesus did not come to make prisoners. He came to give us liberty. He came to give us freedom, to remove the oppression that sin had caused in our life. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled with the yoke of of bondage. You see, the yoke of bondage is the life of sin that we had before. The yoke of bondage is the law that we could not keep. The yoke of bondage is when there is something that calls to you higher than what God calls to you. Christ came to free you from those things and to liberate those things from your life. The freest person on this earth is a person completely in subjugation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone who's willing to say, Lord, whatever you have me to do, Wherever you send me, whatever you want, God, if there's something in my life, like the psalmist says, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. That person can lay his or her head on their pillow at night, completely free and clear of a conscience between them and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, but the alcoholic, he spends his salary on money, uh, on alcohol. He spends countless amount of monies that could go to seeing someone saved in the church to not remembering what they did that night. I I just believe that if you're telling yourself you're doing something because it feels good and that you could stop any time, I would actually say to you, chances are you're a prisoner. And you have no more liberty than the people down at Huntsville tonight. For they're told when to eat, what to do, how to do it, how high to jump. And I'd say some of us are like that. Keep me from presumptuous sins, but keep me from being a prisoner to sin. I want you to notice this finally. It keeps us pleasing to God. Verse 14. This is such a famous verse in the Bible, but usually what I've found is famous verses are famous for a reason. Because there's a lot of truth and a lot of power to them. The Bible says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Now what I like about this is uh, he starts out and says, let the words of my mouth. And I believe that a Christian ought to have a good conversation. 
That's why I believe that it's wrong for a Christian to curse, because you know who curses? The world. You would not appreciate it if I said a curse word right now in the pulpit, but I don't understand how you're any different at your workplace. Why would you not appreciate it that I can do it and you that I can't do it and you can? I, I don't understand that. It is not behooving of a Christian to speak like the world speaks. I've said this before, but when Peter was standing there denying the Lord Jesus Christ, the thing that made him uh, in the same group with them, and someone looked at him and said, No, I know you're one of them because thy speech bereath you. In other words, you talk just like him. And it was not only until then Peter began to curse because he says, well, I don't want to be associated with Jesus because I might be on the cross right next to him. So how can I sound more like the world and less like Jesus? Oh, I know. Beep it a beep beep. And nobody even bothered him after that because they said, well, if you talk like the world, you must be of the world. But friend, you are not of the world. We are not born of this world. We are born of spirit. We are born of God. We are children of God and sons of God. And I don't believe it's a wise thing to use words that your Savior would not. So we must watch our conversation. But here's the problem with that. A lot of, a lot of us have gotten really good at talking and not so good at living. You see, notice the first part of the verse, it says, let the words of my mouth, but it doesn't stop there. And the meditation of my heart. You see, people can hear your words. They cannot see what your heart thinks. They cannot see what your heart feels. And and, and they might be able to hear the story you preach. They might be able to, to see how you come to church on Sunday But at the end of the day, the Bible says in Psalm chapter 51, Thou, O God, desirest truth in the inner, inward parts. In other words, he wants sincerity. He doesn't want fake, cloney Christians. He does not want your idea of Christianity being spoke out and voiced abroad. God wants pure thoughts. God wants pure motives. God wants pure hearts living a Christian life. Not because that's what you think is good, but because you are truly a child of God. That's why uh, the psalmist here says, let the words of my mouth, let everybody know by what I say I'm a Christian. But Lord, let me go much deeper than that. I don't want to only talk a good talk. I must walk a good walk. Some of us have gotten good at cleaning up. We scrub ourselves so that other people around us can see us, but on the inward, we're full of dead men's bones. We are, as Jesus put it, whited sepulchers. We have whitewashed ourselves so that others think we're good, but on the inside, we're rotten to the core. And I just believe that if we study this book and we learn this book, and it goes much deeper than learning its contents, but it is truly applying the message. And I'll be very honest with you, sometimes there are bitter pills that a person must swallow when you read this book. It is not always fun to be told you're wrong. It is not always fun to go through the processes of telling someone you're sorry when you've hurt them. But that's what God word, God's Word says to do. 
But when we fully adhere and fully apply the Word of God to our life, I believe it will keep us in a relationship with Him that will say, God, I will do whatever you want me to do. I will be whatever you want me to be. And the hardest question of all, I will go wherever you want me to go to be what you want me to be. It keeps us pleasing. The shame of this is, even Satan can look good on the outside. Did you know the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Even Satan can look good, but friend, he cannot be good. A lot of us look a lot more like Satan sometimes than we act like Jesus. I recently read a story of a young man. It was a father and a son, and the father happened to be a pastor. One morning they were going to their little country church, and as they walked in, it was just the father and the son, and the pastor, as he routinely did, took out his wallet and threw a dollar in the offering plate in the back of the auditorium. Not a large crowd showed up that day, and it seemed like the people that did show up kind of rejected the sermon and didn't quite hear or weren't fully supportive of what he said. As the service wound up and they dismissed, the, the father, the pastor, stuck around for a little bit, and as they arrived together, the father and the son began to leave together. They walked to the back of the auditorium, and there again was the offering plate. And in that offering plate, the father or the pastor removed the contents of it, and to his surprise, it was the dollar that he left in it. The son, obviously seeing the father was discouraged, looked up at his dad and said, Dad, I guess you can look at it this way. If you would have put more in, you could have got more out. Do you know the same is true with your Bible? There are depths to this book that I'm sorry, no New York Times bestseller can rival. There are such beautiful nuggets of gold. I'm talking about there's not another book in this world that will change you like this book can. But unfortunately, oftentimes we don't put into it so we get nothing out. So my challenge to you, and we're done at 15 till, my challenge to you is this week, yay tonight even, or even tomorrow morning, put into this book. Apply your life to it. And I would suggest to you not only do it on your cell phone, you know, that's the easy way to do it, but take time and make God feel important. You know, make, make him feel like it's bigger than just meeting with him five minutes before your work desk. Mark off a spot under, your, under a light at your coffee table with a cup of coffee and find a powerful passage, something like Hebrews chapter 1. talks about Jesus Christ being made so much better than the angels. You, you read Hebrews chapter 1 and study the truth, study the depth, study the amazing theology in this book. It'll change you, but you'll only get out what you put in. 